Hello, everyone, and welcome to this latest LawPod special for International Women's Day, one of a series which is celebrating the achievements of women in law and their role as legal changemakers. My name is Samantha Hopkins. I'm a PhD researcher at the School of Law here at Queen's, and today I am joined by our own Professor Anne-Marie McAlinden from our School of Law, who is an expert in the field of historical abuses and the ways that these can be addressed. A very warm welcome to you, Anne-Marie. Thank you very much, Samantha. So just briefly, uh, Anne-Marie is a professor of law and criminal justice and is a world-leading expert on sexual offending, having acted as a consultant to local criminal justice agencies and provided expert evidence to the Australian Royal Commission on Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, and this led to a change in Australian law. Anne-Marie's recently completed ESRC-funded research project, Apologies, Abuses and Dealing with the Past, considers, among other aspects, historical institutional abuse. And her most recent book is entitled Children as Risk, Sexual Exploitation and Abuse by Children and Young People, and was published by Cambridge University Press, and was awarded the Kevin Boyle Book Prize for Outstanding Legal Scholarship. Absolutely delighted to have you with us, Anne-Marie. Um, and just to, to start us off, uh, would you be able to tell us a wee bit more about your current work, since I'm sure I haven't covered everything in where I've been going there? Thanks very much, Sam, and thanks very much for having me. Well, as you mentioned there, uh, Samantha, the work I'm doing now at the moment, just finishing up, is on apology and the role of apology in response to historic cases of institutional abuse. So that, as you mentioned, stemmed from uh, a major study, an ESRC five-year study on the role of apology across three sites in Ireland, North and South. So it covered uh, paramilitary violence, the economic crisis and historical institutional abuse, which is obviously the strand where I led. And that study looked at obviously the role of apology across those three sites. And it was a multi-strand methodology. So it looked at archival research of official apologies by church and state. It also involved uh, interdisciplinary literature review across law, criminology, political science, which is actually important about this area. It's not an area you can look at just within the lens of law. It very much brings in history, political science, business management and communication, restorative justice, transitional justice, all of that. So literature review, then public focus groups, focus groups with victims, a public survey with over a thousand respondents across Ireland, and then uh, well over 60 interviews with key stakeholders, about 24 of which related to HIA. So that was important because we wanted to capture the voices of those directly involved in apologies, both in terms of those who crafted or choreographed or delivered apologies, as well as crucially victim survivors who received the apology. So have a number of publications coming out of that area and that project has just been completed. And more recently now, I've got a contract for a monograph on historical institutional abuse with two colleagues in the Republic of Ireland. So James Gallen from DCU and Marie Keenan from UCD. And we're working on a monograph on response, justice responses to historical abuse, including not just apology, but civil redress, canon law, public inquiries, all of that. So that's the project for the, for the next while. And I suppose just lastly, on the policy front, I've also been involved sort of behind the scenes in doing, engaging with some of the work around the forthcoming apology on historical abuse, which is expected from the executive and, and other bodies next Friday, the 11th of March. So some of the research I've been doing around apologies from our project, hopefully I, we think will feed into that. So we will see what comes out of that. So it's very much a live and, and ongoing issue, I think. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting overview of the areas that you're in and the, the sort of interdisciplinary nature of a lot of what you're doing as well, although it is all focused around the one specific area. So I was just wondering, would you be willing to share perhaps how you chose this area to specialize in? Yes, certainly. I mean, my background in general, before I get into the very precise precise or specific area of historical institutional abuse, was on sex offending and responses to sex offending. So stemming from my PhD and even before that, my master's thesis as part of a taught master's in criminology and criminal justice, I started to look at sort of the management of risk concerning sex offending. So things like Megan's Law, as it then was in the late 1990s, forms of sex offender notification and community notification, things like restorative justice, then into transitional justice, looking at alternative responses to sexual violence. And from that, then looking at the management of risk, I started to look at the dynamics of offending within not only intrafamilial but institutional environments. That brought me into grooming and how grooming looks, uh, how grooming, what it looks like, how it works within institutions and organisational settings. And then sort of the natural progression from that, then having looked at how offending occurs within institutions and what it is about institutions that makes uh, sexual offending possible, I started to look at sort of responses to that then. After the offending comes out, I started to critique sort of things like public inquiries, building on the earlier work on restorative justice, looking at transitional justice, the apology work I've mentioned. So that's sort of taken me where to where we are now in terms of sort of transitional justice, restorative justice, justice frameworks more broadly in terms of not only how the offending occurred, but now in the aftermath and years later, how do we respond to that and what forms of redress and reparation are appropriate. That kind of the idea of redress and actually engaging with the victim is something which I think is really, obviously, it's very important in, in all of this research and all of this work that's ongoing. So one thing that is obviously very relevant is this deep engagement with people who have been harmed um, and whose voices would need amplified. So by people like you who are doing this kind of work. So we need to amplify their voices to hear them more widely. And I was just wondering, could you speak a little bit about how you engage with those at risk specifically and how you ensure regardless um, how you're really approaching it, so whether it's policy or whether it's academic work more specifically, um, how you ensure their voices are the ones that are sort of foregrounded um, in your own work, obviously balancing this with your ethical requirements and legal process. Sure. Well, I mean, as, as you've said there, Samantha, the, the main area of work I've been involved in, a little bit of policy, which I can come to, but the majority of work in which I've engaged with victim survivors or those at risk has been through academic research and particularly field research. So, I mean, the way I do that basically is there are a number of things, I think, to consider. First of all, in terms of, of the research, well, one thing you want to do is to make sure that the research you're doing is is victim-centric and victim-sensitive. So, for example, that you're using the right language in terms of your research questions and your research instrument. And for that, for instance, I would speak to victim survivors directly or their advocacy groups in terms of making sure that the research is A, asking the right questions that would be of benefit to people at the end of the research and also doing that in a victim sensitive and centric way because sometimes academic language that we use is not necessarily the same language that will be used in the field or on the ground with with victim survivors or in any area of policy work in this area. I think that the second thing I'm supposed to say and it's equally important if not more important is in terms of the field work and it's very important in doing field work with with victims that you listen sensitively so I mean I mean Obviously, key to that are all the the major issues around avoiding re-traumatization and asking questions in a sensitive way. But you know, 
while while academics can be pushed for time, I, I find with interviews with survivors, you really have to, to give of yourself a lot emotionally in fieldwork and, and really listen to what's being said. You can't say, so to go back to my research question, so if a survivor is good enough to give you their time, and some of the interviews I've done have been over two hours, you have to really to give that time and it's about trying to, to judge the interview and respond sensitively to survivors as well as trying to keep the research or conversation focused on on what, what the research is about. So it's about listening sensitively, I think. And I think uh, probably a third strand would be in relation to the field research is then the dissemination or publication stage. So while the research would be obviously anonymized in terms of you no know, ethics and nobody no victims are clearly identifiable certainly within the jurisdiction of northern ireland you need to avoid jigsaw identification so that might mean sensitive things in terms of you know changing the the, the signifier or identifier for a victim across publications different letters or number to avoid that jigsaw identification but when you do represent victims voices obviously it's done anonymously but again in a very victim sensitive way and within that not just foregrounding and forefronting victims' voices within the publications, but also, I think, crucially to understand that victims are not an homogenous group. So victims, particularly in relation to historical institutional abuse, not everybody wants the same things. Even in relation to apology, for example, some people want an apology or maybe willing to hear an apology. Within that, other victim survivors don't want an apology at all. Some of them have said to me the depth of research and uh, depth of hurt is so much that they, no apology could ever cut it. Equally, another variation might be some victims actually want an apology. They want to hear that acknowledgement, but are not ready to forgive. So, so I think it's about all those understanding all those nuances and variances in terms of who victims are and trying to give to give you know justification to that and to treat those kinds of issues in a sensitive way that victims are all very different and, and there is a great diversity there. Yeah no thank you that's really interesting and I think what you mentioned there about maintaining a sort of rapport with the people that you're interviewing and not just seeing them as subject to something which is really important obvious, obviously as well not even just in your work but more broadly so it is something that's really interesting to hear. So in an area like your own, where you are engaging with various stakeholders at a variety of different levels and shedding lights on harms that have previously been hidden in a variety of situations, I imagine one of the things that may also prove challenging is also being able to uh, access people who have been harmed in a, a fair and you know balanced way. So you're actually getting that um, engagement with a wide variety of opinions and a wide variety of people, as you mentioned, victims are um, not homogenous. So my question for you then is, how do you go about making these connections and getting that connection with victims so you can bring um, their harms to light and assist them? And how do you link as well to others who are investigating in the same area? So this is more perhaps aimed at students who'd be wanting to look forward to doing work similarly in your area. Yeah, sure. So I think in relation to the first bit in terms of how you link with victims, get access to victims or their advocates, I think probably over the it's easier for more experienced people, as you sort of maybe hinted at there. I think over the course of your career, you tend to build up a network of professional contexts and contacts, those who work in the field. So for the apology research, for example, I, I and in combination with the research team, would have already had a fairly wide ranging network of organisations that we've spoken to in previous projects that deal with victims and I think a good way in terms of you know thinking about students and getting access to this area and getting access to people for research is to is to go through those victims organizations I mean it can be difficult you you have in the HIA space for example you have 
some more high profile victims than others, particularly those who are leading some of the advocacy groups and, and have the greatest admiration for them. They do fantastic work. Other victims who are less high profile. So I think to try and get the representation of different views, it's about going through the victims' organisations and trying to get access to survivors that way. It's important as well, though, I think for, for anybody starting research in this area to think about well, are there other sources of information here that would help you to avoid going back to the field to having to ask victims similar or the same questions again, so as to avoid overburdening victims? For example, because this is such a live issue, historical institutional abuse at the moment, and there are multiple disciplines looking at this, as I've mentioned, history, political science, law, just to name, name a few. I think you have to look at, you know, other oral archives, other other research or reports that have sampled victims' voices comprehensively to avoid you having to go back and ask victims again. Because, you know, every victim that I've approached or survivor I've approached have been very generous with their time. You need to avoid that risk of overburdening. That said, though, there there is, if research is new, then you cannot do research perhaps without involving victims and giving them a chance to represent their voice. So it's about trying to get that balance in terms of accessing um, victims or survivors. I think the link to other academics and practitioners is very important. I think for all disciplines, but particularly this area of historical institutional abuse, as I mentioned at the outset, it's an area that touches upon multiple disciplines, which which is how we approach the apology research and how I'm going forward with this book. So, for example, law, criminology, sociology, political science, history, management and communication studies, it's even anthropology, social work, start of justice, transitional justice, you could go on. So I think about doing that, for example, how I got um, the framework for this book together is I I knew of, I sort of knew one of my collaborators quite well from conferences. The other one I'd only met once or twice. And it's just about reaching out, even emailing people, if you don't know them, meeting people at conferences, but trying to network. And certainly we're in an age now, I think with academia, you can't just work on your own within your own discipline. Things like if you want to look at academic goals and targets, wider things like grants, everything is about cross-disciplinary collaboration. So it's about going to conferences, going to conferences even outside your main discipline and reaching out to people even via, via email of who the main people in the area are. Yeah, so I think it, it, it's fun, but a lot of my earlier work used to be sole authored. But more increasingly now, as I get into this topic, I see that it is an area you can't work on your own just in the discipline of law. So I'm certainly making the effort to, to reach out to more policy organisations and, and academics from other disciplines. Thank you. You know, that is really interesting as well from my own perspective as um, a PhD researcher and sort of coming into academia as well and the kind of emphasis on um, collaboration that there really is in all areas. So I'm in a slightly tangential area to Anne-Marie for anyone that's listening. But I I think it is really interesting that it's not just about your sole authored stuff anymore. It is very much about getting that collaboration and that sort of networking skill in, which is really important. So perhaps at a, a more substantive level then, could you perhaps talk a little bit about the way that law then can be modified or has been modified due to your own work in order to then produce the impact for victims who have been invisible possibly over quite a long period of time often? Yeah, well, thank you. Well, I think I think in the more general stance, first of all, just to say, I think in, in law, we're in a unique position because we're in a discipline that has direct relevance in terms of obviously legal frameworks, regulatory frameworks. So we're in an environment and a discipline that has a chance to change policy directly. And and from my own experience, that occurred in relation to the research on grooming that I mentioned at the outset. So, so grooming, just for those who aren't familiar with it, is broadly defined. It's a process that has two elements to it. One is about 
it's preparing the way or setting up opportunities for the abuser to obviously sexually offend or abuse a child. But equally, the second part of that is having abused the child, it's about trying to create situations of maintenance to maintain that situation of abuse to stop others from finding out uh, whether through disclosure by the child or disco- accidental discovery by others. So it's about the setting up of abuse, if you like, and then the maintenance of the abuse. So the previous work I had done on grooming, which was essentially really two main publications, it was a 2006 article in Social and Legal Studies and a book in 2012 by published by Oxford University Press. And you can see the length of time of those dates of how long it takes for actual impact from research to unfold itself. So we're talking 2006, 2012 for, for work that didn't actually start to have impact until about 2018 to 2020, which I'll, I'll go through with you now. But basically the work on grooming and the dynamics of sex offending within institutional context, that work I had done led to a change in the law, first of all, in the state of Victoria in Australia and then throughout Australia. And and how that happened was, if you want me to just talk through that briefly, um, because it may help others, is that the Victorian inquiry, there was a parliamentary inquiry in the state of Victoria in 2006 into institutional forms of offending. And that inquiry picked up on that, the book, as I mentioned, the 2012 book and the 2006 article themselves. And then on the basis of that, there was an Australian Royal Commission, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, set up a few years after that in 2013. And I was then invited on the basis of of, uh, the citations in the Victorian Inquiry Report to give expert testimony to the Royal Commission in Australia. So I did that basically via video link. I was invited to go, but I was finishing another book at the time. So I thought away and up basically going for a week or two weeks in the sun or getting the book finished in time. So I stayed and finished the book and did the um, did the testimony by live link at about two o'clock in the morning our time. So they invited me to peer review a research report they'd done on grooming and to give oral and written evidence to the commission, which I did. And on the basis of that research and my oral and written testimony, they then based their understanding and definition and recommendations on grooming on my research in their final report. So, and that was really around two points, which coincided with the two points I'd been making in my research, which is, first of all, that grooming can occur with respect, not just to the child as the direct victim, but that grooming can also take place with respect to carers or family members or wider society in order to get access to the child. So that, so they looked at that and they had this offence then, introduced this new offence where persons other than the child, third parties can be groomed. And that was criminalised for the first time in law anywhere. And the second recommendation that they, they took up from my research that was put into law as a new offence was that grooming can also occur in terms of communication with a child in any form of communication, i.e. it can also occur online as well as offline. And that was crucial because to this date, and it's true of most jurisdictions still, many jurisdictions across the world only criminalise grooming in electronic form. So, for example, you know, like things like sexual solicitation online, even within the UK and the Republic of Ireland, this offence of meeting a child online or contacting them online with a view to meeting them offline. But there's a strong online element. So this was the first time a jurisdiction was looking at, well, grooming can actually occur face to face outside of virtual contexts. So both those recommendations, as I said, in relation to the grooming of people other than the child and the grooming can take place offline, they were then captured in a new criminal offence. 
and that was then enacted throughout all uh, sorry most states in Victoria and the last uh, Victoria and all the rest of the Australian states and the last I looked was about six months six months ago sorry every state in Australia had adopted that except two and the other two have that issue under consideration so um, that was the impact I had from my research in Australia. It started off, as I said, just to summarize, started off sort of incidental. The inquiry picked up on my research themselves. I didn't do anything to get that research to their attention. But then once basically they, they had the research in their sites, then that snowballed in terms of the work I did for the Royal Commission and them actually adopting the research. I think looking back, if I was reflecting on it, I would say, and I've said this sort of in seminars in the school since, I would take a more methodical and planned approach to, to impact in terms of trying to plan this but and I did sort of at the later stages of this in terms of tracking it and, and keeping an eye on what was going on but certainly at the start it had a life of its own it sort of started the ball rolling on its own really. That's really fascinating actually the the way that it just sort of developed and sort of snowballed as you say of its own volition almost and obviously backed up by the work that you've done previously. Um, I also find it really interesting, the difference between the online and offline spheres, where um, online is quite often subordinated to offline, but you were finding the complete opposite in your work, which is really fascinating. So given that the the work that you've done does have this huge impact on a variety of different people, both directly and indirectly, um, I imagine that it is something which can be quite emotionally exhausting, as well as being obviously very, very rewarding. And I was just wondering if you could tell us what the main drivers are in your work. I'm, I'm sure there's a few. Um, and how you would tend to overcome any setbacks as well that you come up against um, where developments must occur quite rapidly in your area? Yeah, that's a really good question, Samantha. There's quite a lot of different elements in that. Well, I think, first of all, in terms of just me and drivers and then before looking at maybe the challenges, I think it's it's really topical. It's something I've always been interested in, sexual offending per se, sort of the dynamics of it, how it's managed, how you respond to it, what are the appropriate justice responses in the aftermath of it. Um, I think it's topical and unfortunately it's something that's not going to, to go away. So, I mean, it's certainly not an area where you're always looking for what am I going to write about now because the developments are so quick. Things like the digital age, the developments are happening all the time. Maybe should have mentioned aside from historical abuse, as all the work I'm doing with um, Rachel Colleen and Ethna Dowds, two senior lecturers in the school, in terms of the dynamics of sex offending in the digital age and how that changes cultural and legal constructions of victimhood. So things like that, we're always going to have something to write about, unfortunately. There's just new manifestations coming all the time, new high-profile cases. It is very fast-moving, as, as you mentioned. Certainly the digital stuff we're finding now, and even as a parent myself, you're just getting your head around one app or one manifestation of something, and it's on to something else. I think in terms of setbacks and challenges, it, it is a very emotional area. And I've talked about this before, I think a different fora in the school. Certainly, you know, I think it's something that has impacted me more, even as a parent, having now children of my own. Doing the field work, it can be difficult because you do have to have a certain impartiality and steel yourself to do it, or you wouldn't be able to do it. But at the same time, it can be very harrowing and you have to not be desensitised enough that you then become insensitive to survivors or, and, you know, just brush through the research. You can't do that either. So finding that balance, I think, in this area is a real challenge, particularly when you're dealing with survivors. And I know certainly in, in previous projects I've done, not, not this one, but certainly the grooming research, for example, I didn't actually interview survivors for that one. I was interviewing professionals, but certainly I was hearing perhaps secondhand from professionals, the details of some cases anonymized. And it deeply affected me in terms of, you know, 
the dynamics of how offending occurs and what parents can do to children within family contexts. So that can be difficult. And probably in hindsight, going into that depth of research and the dynamics of offending, I probably should have had counselling after that. So that, that's probably a thing as well. I'm more mindful now as I've become more experienced of getting this balance. If you do need to, de- to to talk and to debrief with someone, do that. And I know in conversations with other academics in this area, there are those who go to counselling regularly. Those who do deal with survivors and are working on the front line do because it's a way of protecting yourself and, and processing the research you're doing on a daily basis. So that can be a challenge in terms of the emotional nature of it and the sensitivity and, and keeping that pa- that balance. And, and the main probably practical challenge, I suppose like any academic, a challenge can be making sure that the ducks align if you want to do a project, that you get the funding and you get the book contract or whatever it is and the right people are willing and free to work with you when you want to work with them. That's what all academics face. But I suppose that the day-to-day practical challenges I've mentioned it's not just the emotional side and sort of getting that balance while still being sensitive to the research, but it's keeping on top of it because it is such a fast moving area. And unfortunately, the nature of the human condition is such that there will always be forms of sex offending against the children and the vulnerable. People have said to me, for example, would you, are you not sick of sex offending? Would you not look at something else? But there's so many different aspects of it. So it's an important area, I think. And uh, it's one I've sort of, have, for the most part, have enjoyed doing. It's important work, I think. Definitely. Yes. This is one of the things I was thinking is that it is, as you say, very emotionally taxing. And um, it's something that we do have to be aware of in this area as well, that you can't really help people if you yourself are suffering so much that you can't process what they're telling you and help them in a, in a useful way for them as well. So it's been really, really interesting speaking to you. And I've got one last question, if that's all right, which is part of uh, this overarching theme of sort of celebrating women's achievements as part of International Women's Day. And just wondering, Uh, what you would say your proudest achievement or aspect of your work is? So thinking about that, I think maybe on the academic front, maybe perhaps book prizes. So for example, the my first book, The Shaming of Sex Offenders in 2007, published by Hart, that won the British Society of Criminology Book Prize in 2008 for the first best sole authored monograph in the area of criminology. And then after that, the more recently, 2019, the Kevin Boyle Book Prize for my book on sexual exploitation by children and young people, children as risk. So I think that's a proud moment, I suppose, in one way, because it's it's recognition by your peers that the scholarship is 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 good quality and it's important and it's making a difference. So it is nice to see that sort of peer recognition. But I think I think beyond that, um. And I suppose just to add to that, within an academic career, there are very few accolades you get. There might be an article, prize, whatever here and there, but there, there can be very few accolades from your peer community. So I think I think that was a sort of highlight, a highlight for me or their highlights. But I think more broadly, as I was going to say there, on, on the policy level and the, the Royal Commission work, which I've went through in detail a moment ago, I think that really was a high because that was about seeing on the very front line the impact the work has and the real world relevance. And certainly when I gave my evidence to the Australian Royal Commission, as I mentioned, it was in the middle of the night for me, two o'clock in the morning. It was like daytime for them. I was on a panel. So the way they do it was on a panel. The panel I was obviously on was grooming and entrapment. And it was about a panel, a session that lasted an hour and a half. And there was me and a survivor. Uh, it's actually it was actually they weren't directly victimized themselves, but their child, um, who was since deceased, had been victimized by somebody in a residential institutional context, and they were very emotional. So, th- I think that was a high because while that was harrowing, 
and, and you're you're there giving evidence from an academic perspective and building on what um the witness has said it's it's very humbling as well in terms of being sharing a plat it's a privilege and it was very humbling as well in terms of sharing a platform with those who have been victimized and their families saying well this is the difference and this is the relevance of this work so i think that's pro- was probably a highlight as well Yes, I can well imagine that one of the the great things about it um, is being able to see that impact in the world and show that you actually feel that you're able to to assist people in this area, um, which is really, really fantastic. So then all that is left for me is to thank Anne-Marie very, very much for her time and this very, very interesting discussion that we've had today. I certainly learned a lot and thank everyone for listening as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Samantha, for having me. And also just thanks to the School Swan Committee and Professor Malander for the invitation. Thank you very much.